Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, a podcast on Christian faith and 21st century life. I'm Lindsay Funtick, inviting all seekers to ponder profound things free of charge. All right, good day, everyone. Welcome to another faith-seeking understanding. I am Alan Bevere, your host. I am a pastor, retired professor, Bible moth, theologian in exile, and a peddler of hope. And I am the self-appointed Anselm of Canterbury Chair of Podcast Theology and Culture here at Faith Seeking Understanding University, a completely fabricated institution of higher learning, where all seekers are invited to ponder profound things free of charge. And this is one of our episodes we produce here, one of our programs called Word Revisited. And I am very pleased to have uh, in conversation today, uh, Michael Gorman, uh, who is uh, the Raymond E. Brown Professor of Biblical Studies and Theology at St. Mary's Seminary and University. And you are, there's also the St. Mary's Ecumenical Institute there, Michael. Is that a different thing or is it, can I, how does that work? It, it is the ecumenical division of the Catholic seminary. Okay. So it's like two theological schools in one, a Catholic seminary, essentially residential by day classes, and then an evening ecumenical division, which is open to anybody and everybody. Ah, boy, that sounds so wonderful. It is fun. It's a great, <laughs> a great place. Yeah, it is. So how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Alan. It's great to see you again and to be back with you. I'm yeah, yeah. Well, you had some time with you. We enjoy we enjoy when you come and have conversation with us. So today, our topic is Saint Paul. Who was the Apostle Paul? And uh, a question to get at in a little bit later is uh, to I think it was David Wenham who posted this in a subtitle years ago of one of his books. Was he a follower of Jesus or founder of Christianity? So we do want to have some conversation about Paul. So, and and Michael, you are certainly an authority on Paul. You're actually one of my uh, handful of go-to persons uh, when it comes to reading Paul. You have uh, written several books on Paul. And uh, friends, in both the uh, podcast and YouTube descriptions, we'll have links uh, to that so that you can take a look at uh, uh, what he has written. And I highly recommend anything that he has, that he has published. So Michael, in just maybe to begin the conversation is to ask you, you've spent years in Paul, studying Paul. What, what about Paul? What is it about Paul that just matters? Hmm. Yeah, great, great question. Well, I think what matters with respect to Paul is that he is, without doubt, the most significant figure other than Jesus of the first century, at least with respect to Christianity. We have, um, I mean, it's often been said that without the Apostle Paul, the, the Jesus as Messiah movement might have remained primarily a Jewish phenomenon. I don't think in the plan of God that would have happened, but from a human point of view, you have someone who was called, sent, to bring that gospel of a Jewish Messiah and Lord to the Gentile world, to the pagans, to the ethne, to the nations. And so he did that. I mean, he didn't do it by himself. He had colleagues, he had people who didn't work with him, but a major figure just in terms of the, 
bringing of 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 the Christian faith to to essentially to the world to the empire, but just as importantly is the fact that Paul has laid the foundation of all Christian theology, all anything you want to talk about from the understanding of God properly, Christology, it's the doctrine of Christ, the spirit, pneumatology, the church, ecclesiology, sin, hamartiology, if you want to use the fancy name, uh, everything you could possibly talk about. Obviously, he's not alone, and he's building on scripture, he's building on traditions about Jesus, but so much of Christian theology is in, is indebted to Paul. So those two things, the the, the spread of the movement to the Gentile world and his his uh, deep theology, which is a very spiritual theology. It's not just head a head trip, if you will. So you put those two things together, you have a pretty powerful impact on the church and the world. Yeah, he, um, uh, you know, one of the things that interests me when you, when you talk about uh, all his connection to all those, you talk, mentioned different doctrines, but his letters, of course, are ad hoc, right? He's writing to specific people uh, in specific situations, um so so you know he paul doesn't sit down and say i'm going to write a systematic theology on what i believe but at the same time as he articulates his uh his letters in various circumstances um he does kind of give us this big picture doesn't he oh what the gospel is about absolutely i mean that that's the fascinating thing about paul his letters as you rightly say on the one hand are are uh, situational documents. They're addressed to specific situations, specific groups of people, and so forth. But they contain within them the fruit of his own reflection and teaching, his theology and theologizing as he goes along. So he's not just making things up and, and responding to the Corinthians one way and the Colossians another way and the in the Romans another way. Uh, you're the expert on Colossians, so you can talk about that letter. But uh, it, 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 I think it's important for people to hear that he's a pastoral theologian. Yes, he's a pastor working with those congregations, but he's not just giving them sort of ask Amy advice. Mm -hmm. you know, this, is, this is deep theology and spirituality that emerges on these pages. Yeah. And one of the things that always has struck me about him is that, um, I mean, he's 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 working. He's working at this in a sense, almost on his own, isn't he? I mean, he he figures. You know, I think about I think about the Damascus Road experience, and Paul meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, and and the way I've thought about it is is that you know he before he meets Jesus, he's got all these reasons why Jesus can't be the Messiah and why why uh, the Christians are taking faith in the wrong direction, and yet he meets the risen Christ. So now all of a sudden it's, oh my goodness, I've been reading this wrong. <laughs> and he's got to go back now because now he's he's met the risen Jesus. So he knows he knows the scriptures point to him. So now he's got to go figure it out. Yeah. So he's almost just like going to this without all the study aids that you and I have uh, to work through this. Right. Well, I, I think what you just said is very significant. He, he is born and raised as a Jew. He remains a Jew. His scriptures, he, has, he doesn't have, as far as we know, he does not have Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Mm -hmm. He has stories about Jesus, uh, I think, and he has traditions about Jesus' teaching and life. 
and especially about his death and resurrection. But Paul's main source for reflecting on this experience is the scriptures of Israel. Yeah. Where does Isaiah fit into this picture about a crucified Messiah? Where does Jeremiah fit into the idea of something new happening? Ah, maybe it's the new covenant. Uh, th those kinds of questions have to be going through his mind. As you said, rightly, in conversation with others. He's not completely on his own, but as far as we can see from his own letters, a lot of this is his own uh, reflection and study that, that takes place uh, as a result of this call slash conversion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what so what is Paul's overarching message? Mm -hmm. I mean, if we if we could say, you know, give us the the the, the fifty thousand put flyover bullet points. What is it that Paul would want to communicate to us about what he believes and what's important? Well, uh, I'll start with a, an interesting answer to a, a question. You had mentioned earlier that just the phrase you mentioned, reading Paul. I actually wrote a little book called Reading Paul. Oh, good. Yeah. That uh, would be really appropriate for a lot of your audience. It's It's from my point of view, one of the most fun things I've ever written. It's less than 200 pages, small small book, so it's 200 small pages, and it deals thematically with all kinds of things about Paul. Uh, it's wrote it a few years back, but it's it's still, I think, handy and, and useful. And one of the reasons I bring it up, somewhere early in the book, I can't give you the exact page because I didn't look at it ahead of time, but in any event, I have a one-sentence overview summary of Paul, except think of your most convoluted German sentence, and that's what this is. It's a whole okay. page. <laughs> it's one whole page of um, uh, the gospel, if you will, according to Paul, in, in one long sentence, and uh, I'm not going to bother to read it, even if I can find it here, but in any event... Um, it's here somewhere. Uh, but I would say to start, you can really say in, in three English words, one of the most important things about Paul, and that is Jesus is Lord. That's an early Christian acclamation that Paul bears witness to in a couple of places, probably used in the churches maybe even before Paul, maybe apart from Paul, but that that claim, Jesus is Lord, what does that mean? And then to go a little further, a little longer, Paul has a couple of, of summaries of the gospel in, in a variety of places. In 1 Corinthians 15, for instance, he says the gospel that he received and handed on to the Corinthians has two focal points, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and two points that confirm each of those, the burial and the appearances. So the burial confirms the death, the appearances confirm the resurrection. So we have a living crucified Messiah, a living Lord, if you will. And then a couple other places where he kind of summarizes the gospel, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel, he's not ashamed of it because it's the power of God for salvation to everybody, to the Jew first and then to the Greek or Gentile. And then my favorite, and I'll then I'll stop summarizing. 
my favorite text, as, as you probably know, is Philippians 2, mm -hmm. uh, especially chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, in which Paul presents another summary, I think a very important one, of his message. I call it his master story, um, but it basically says, uh, forgive me for not being 100% precise, but although he was in the form of God, he, of course, being Christ, he did not uh, employ this uh, status for his own good, for selfish exploitation, but rather emptied himself and became incarnate, taking on human form, and then uh, uh, humbling himself to the point of death, as a matter of fact, death on a Roman cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave, uh, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, and the name here is not just Jesus' name, but the name Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So there, we come back to that Jesus is Lord. But that narrative, that story is, here we have the story of, of Christ who was in the form of God. He's co-equal with God. He's in, in, in the presence of God who deliberately, voluntarily self-empties and self-humbles in order to provide salvation, as Paul says elsewhere, for Jew and Gentile alike. And then he, Paul, invites us to adopt that story as our own, to be baptized into it, he says in Romans 6, and, and, and in essence to live out that story, to embody that story. So that's why theology and spirituality for Paul are never separate. Mm -hmm. You can't just have a gospel, it's good news, I'm going to, you know, I'll paraphrase a, a poor interpretation of Paul. If I believe in Jesus as my savior, when I go to heaven, I will die. Much more than that. If I believe in Jesus as my Savior and Lord now, I will live in him and for him for the remainder of my days in community with other like-minded people. So, uh, yeah, lots more that could be said, but the gospel is, is the good news of God reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians. So Paul's got these little snippets here and there that you sort of have to piece together mm -hmm. to get a whole... Um, description of the gospel, but each of those little snippets does summarize it in good ways. Yeah. You talk about, um, and when you were talking about Philippians 2, I uh, thought about this in your writings, you talk about cruciformity. Mm -hmm. uh, what is that? What do you mean when you talk about cruciformity? Good. Well, the, the term cruciformity is, is, sounds more complicated than it is. Cruciform simply means cross-shaped. It was originally, and it still is, architectural language for the shape of a building, especially a cathedral, in the shape of a cross. Mm -hmm. You go to Notre Dame in Paris, hopefully next summer. Uh, you go to the National Cathedral in Washington, any other cathedral in Europe, St. John the Divine in New York, etc. So a cross-shaped building, that became in the 20th century, the, the adjective cruciform became commonly used to describe uh, discipleship following Jesus in the way of the cross. Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Luke, take up your cross and follow me. At the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st, people, myself included and some others, started using it, turning it into a noun that means cross-shaped discipleship. Or to put it 
a little bit more fully, what does it mean to have Christ living in us who was crucified as an act of self-giving obedience and love for God and self-giving love for the world? What does it mean to have that living Lord living among us and within us? And so cruciformity is cross-shaped existence. I like to say uh, the, the cross is not only the basis of our salvation or the source of our salvation, but also the shape of it. Uh, and, and it has to do not so much with suffering, although suffering can come, but to do with self-giving love like Jesus displayed there in, in Philippians 2. And it's and and I wouldn't really want to emphasize this. This is not masochistic, it's not sadistic. It's about life-giving, life-giving uh, way of, of living. Um, that's the paradox because Christ is both the crucified one and the resurrected one. When he lives in us as the living one, he can't stop being the crucified one. And the crucified one is never anything but the resurrected one. Mm -hmm. So that's the paradox of cruciformity. It is, it is both life-affirming and life-giving, both for those who receive it and those who practice it. But it is in the shape of that self-giving love on the cross. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm really drawn to that. I, I, one of the things, and now, of course, this has been my experience. It may not have been yours. Um, but, you know, we talk as Christians, at least, at least in the circles that I've run in, uh, Protestant circles, evangelical mainline Protestant circles, we, we don't, we talk a lot about the cross as what God has done for us in Jesus, right? And, and important to do. But I'm not so sure we've spent a lot of time talking about how the cross reflects how God expects us to live in the world. Right. We we, we don't see that cross-shaped way of life. Uh, yeah. I, and I, I've been trying to get out, why is that? Why do we not spend more time thinking about the cross is what it calls me to do? Yeah. And even though it also speaks to what God has done for me, but 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 what it calls me to do. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, it's it's a little bit surprising if you think about it, because I think almost every Christian knows texts like Jesus' words in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where he says something to the effect of take up your cross, mm -hmm. or in Luke's gospel, they take up your cross daily and follow me. So we have that, and we have other sayings from Jesus uh, related to, to that, like Son of Man did not come to be, ser uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom as a ransom for many, and those who want to be great will be least, and all those kinds of things. So we, we have it, we know those kinds of texts, but I think what happens is, and, and I'm, as you know, I'm a, I'm a Protestant, I'm a United Methodist like you, or as I like to say these days, switch a couple of letters. I'm an untied Methodist yeah. uh, in an untied denomination. Uh, a little theological dyslexia there or something, right? So um, here's, a, here's a thought. I teach in a Roman Catholic seminary, and I've heard people say this sometimes. Catholics emphasize the cross. Protestants emphasize the resurrection. Mm -hmm. The difference being... You go into a Catholic church or a Catholic seminary, you see a crucifix. You go into most Protestant churches, not all, but most Protestant churches, you see, if you see anything, you see a cross 
with 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 Christ, you know, no corpus as as we call it, no no body on no, on the cross, just an empty cross, and and the rationale for that is well, he's risen. But theologically speaking, as I as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you can never separate the crucified Jesus from the resurrected. So we need a few crosses, uh, with without Jesus in, uh, on them in Catholic circles and some crosses with Jesus still on there, perhaps in Protestant circles to remind us. And when you read Paul's letters, I mean, I, right now I'm finishing a commentary on, on 1 Corinthians. And from start to finish, any, any commentator you read on 1 Corinthians, any book on 1 Corinthians will stress how important it is in that letter. Paul is saying in a nutshell, you Corinthians have forgotten the cross. Mm -hmm. You might know the spirit in some way. You might know the resurrected Jesus, but you've forgotten the crucified Jesus. So you've got all this knowledge. You've got all these gifts, but you're not using them in very Christ-like ways. And I mm -hmm. think I wouldn't be the first person to say the contemporary Western church is a lot like the Corinthian church yeah. in, many, in many ways. In many ways, my experience as a pastor for over 38 years was uh, just the uh, disinterest in Good Friday. Uh, and even when I had churches that uh, we did Holy Week services, we did all the Holy Week services and just, you know, as as you have experienced, uh, Easter was packed out and Good Friday, we could hardly get any of the Persons there. It was almost if Good Friday was sort of a, a, a sort of a, a hiccup on the way to <laughs> on the way to Easter. Yeah, that's. I think your experience is very common these days, and certainly my experience as a as a lay leader in our our churches. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we put. <laughs> I can't imagine frankly, myself, I can't imagine even bothering to go to church on Easter if I hadn't been commemorating Holy Thursday and, and Good Friday. Yeah. Uh, what, without those connections, you're really missing a significant, not only a significant part of the story, significant meaning of the story. Yeah. I, I just said to someone last week, we were talking about Holy Week, and I said that I was raised very low church, non-denominational context. We never went to Good Friday services. We never had them. We just would go to Easter. But now I've had, you know, uh, 35 years or so of experiencing that. And I would never want to go back. Mm -hmm. I would never want to go to an Easter Sunday service without having had gone to the attended Good Friday mm -hmm. and, and just been there because it's such a... For Paul, is it fair to say that for Paul, cross and resurrection are really kind of one event? Yeah. They are inseparable, yeah. and he he can, uh, at times he can emphasize one over the other, mm -hmm. depending on the need. I think depending on the context, but they are ultimately inseparable, and that's why I go back to the baptism passage in Romans six. We have remember those four those four points in First Corinthians fifteen. He he died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, and he appeared. You get the same four aspects, if you will, of the story in, in baptism. We die with Christ in baptism. We're buried with him. We're raised to new life. And then, second half of that passage, we are called to 
present ourselves as instruments or weapons even in God's hands, uh, that's our appearance. That's mm -hmm. our proof that we have been raised to new life, that we've been raised from the dead. So those four gospel points, if you will, from 1 Corinthians 15 feed right into Romans chapter 6, Paul's understanding of baptism. Okay, good. Um, I want to get into that one big question I've said at the beginning, but um, as an entry into that, um, it has been noticed uh, by some that it, it appears anyway, that Paul in his writing doesn't really mention the teaching of Jesus much, doesn't really refer uh, much to anything like that. I And I have read people, and I think I'm sure you have too, who've said Paul really doesn't seem concerned about the teaching of Jesus or the life of Jesus. For him, it's all cross-resurrection. What what do you think about that? What why what is going on there in Paul's letters that Jesus, at least on the surface, doesn't appear to be more front and center as far as his life and teaching? Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, I think we have to be very careful about. And you weren't doing this or even suggesting it, but some yeah. people do pit Jesus against Paul. Yeah, and say, well, I don't follow Paul. I follow Jesus. Well, okay. Yes, Jesus is our Lord, but Paul is the Lord's appointed apostle. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to, to keep that in, in mind as well. But anyhow, back to the question itself. Well, Paul has a couple of things going on. First of all, he meets the resurrected Christ, as you were saying a, a little bit ago, Alan. And as he does so, he realizes his, his whole understanding of this Messiah, which had been uh, his focus of opposition, that he was a crucified Messiah. And that was at least part, if not the central point, of his opposition to this. How can you have a crucified, conquering king? Makes no sense. So the paradox of meeting the resurrected Christ, who is the crucified Messiah, grabs Paul and shakes him up, reconfigures him, and forms his basic point of view from there, there on. Mm -hmm. So he, cross and resurrection for him almost have to become what is central to Paul. Right. That said, what Paul sees going on in the, in the churches is, as he teaches, they, I think, already have heard the traditions about Jesus at least some of them. Paul can refer to them on occasion, but he doesn't need to repeat them because he's writing pastoral letters to specific problems in light of his particular new covenant take on what God has done primarily through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But he's not ignoring his teachings. Mm -hmm. a, couple of, a couple of points about that. Um, we see especially... When Paul wants to reinforce his own cruciform lifestyle or the expectations of communities he's writing to, he will appeal in a very elusive way to the teachings of Jesus, especially like the Sermon on the Mount. So in Romans chapter uh, 12 and, and 13, you get some allusions to um, Jesus teaching about non-retaliation, for instance, mm -hmm. or when you hear Paul describing his the ministry of him and his colleagues in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 
there are allusions to the notion of, of taking rather than giving uh, suffering. You have, uh, or, or evil. So there are, there's a special coherence in Paul's mind between what Jesus taught and how we ought to live and how he ought to do ministry. And that's where you see, I think, a great, great many of his allusions to that aspect of Jesus' teaching. But Paul also says, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I have a word from Jesus here. Don't mm. get divorced. Right. Uh, uh, I don't have a word from Jesus about what to do if your Gentile pagan spouse uh, is married to you and you've now become a believer because I don't have a word from Jesus because Jesus didn't deal with that situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, I think there's a great correspondence between Jesus' teaching and Paul's lifestyle, number one. There's also a correspondence between some of Jesus' specific teachings and some of Paul's specific teachings. And then also, there's a very strong correspondence between Paul and Jesus on a number of key ethical and doctrinal issues. Mm -hmm. The centrality of Israel to God's plan and the centrality of love of God and love of neighbor, which appears in, in both as the kind of central command. The importance of marriage as the unity of one man and one woman, quoting Genesis, both in Paul and in uh, in the Gospels, according to G in Jesus in the Gospels. Um, you have um, teachings about the keeping of the commandments of God. So there's there's more than what initially meets the eye because Paul doesn't go around and say, for the most part, uh, here's what Jesus said about that, or here's what Jesus says about this. But if you line them up on some of these key issues, they're not only very close, uh, they're not only simpatico, they are essentially the same. But you have to sometimes look between the lines to see yeah. those similarities. I sometimes wonder that if we don't, you know, that like for you, you mentioned Corinthians. So let's just take Paul's two letters to the to the church at Corinth. I mean, it's almost as if what we seem to forget is that there is a dynamic conversation happening in Corinth of which the two letters we have are a slice, right? Mm -hmm. So so, so there's a lot more happening, just like there is a lot more happening in any congregation, a lot more conversation, discussion. So to simply conclude that, well, Jesus isn't concerned about, or Paul is not concerned about Jesus's teaching, he's just interested in cross and resurrection alone, sort of denies or, or ignores the fact that there is a larger, larger dynamic and reality going on here that just happens in every context. Yeah. Yeah. A good example of that is, well, related a, a piece of information, at least. It's clear that one of Paul's major concerns was uh, the uh, sexual immorality that was rampant in the Roman Empire and had infiltrated the earliest Christian congregations, mm -hmm. or at least was there was a temptation for that to happen. And it's in that kind of context that Paul draws on the scriptures of Israel and, uh, and on the teaching of Jesus, uh, indirectly sometimes, about that particular aspect of life, sexual immorality. Um, and you can do the same thing with other 
um, topics that come up in Paul's letters and come to the conclusion that Paul has already either taught them about Jesus' teaching or knows that they have heard Jesus' teaching in, in that context of, of the evangelizing that others have done or that he has done so that he's building on rather than simply repeating what he had said and others had said um, in in the founding of the church. Yeah. 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 I very careful not to assume that everything Paul says, does, and knows is included in one or two or three or even 13 letters. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So then that gets to the main question, which I think you have done some answering on, but but this pitting Jesus against Paul. Um, I I have uh, run across it late in some circles where yeah. Where and you know I think of I think of Thomas Jefferson who uh, thought that uh, uh, Paul and Calvin were the two villains of Christian history. <laughs> who you know Jesus had this wonderful religion of love and and yeah. teachings of morals, and then along came comes uh, Paul and and turns it into a kind of a, a slaughterhouse sacrificial theology, and then Calvin takes it even worse and farther. But there, there is some of that out there. There are people who think somehow Paul takes what Christianity should have been or what Jesus wanted it to be uh, off the rails. Um, how do you respond to that? Well, one, I, a lot of different things could be said, but one manifestation of what you're talking about, Alan, is the tendency for people to say, as you hinted, Jesus preached uh, love and inclusion, and Paul preached almost the opposite. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe not so much the opposite of love, but certainly a, a more exclusive way of 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 life. You know, judging and and so forth. Well, the first thing to say about that is. You've got to pretty much cherry pick the Gospels to get the idea that Jesus was prime. His primary message was gospel of love and inclusion. He had some pretty strong language about the failings of, of certain parties, certain groups, certain people. He had strong expectations. He had um, a demanding way of life, the two ways. You know, there's a way that leads to life, a way that leads to death. And that's very Jewish, it's very prophetic, it's very Jesus, and it's very Paul. So if you start with the premise that Jesus is all about love and inclusion, and then Paul is something else, you've really kind of severed Jesus from not only the Gospels, but from his Jewish roots. Yeah, Jesus is calling for the complete, all, a complete alternative way of life that is... Uh, coherent with and and a result of the inbreaking of God in this reign of God, this kingdom of God, and nothing is going to be the same. And yes, Jesus opened that to the poor and the weak, as did Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for instance. Um, he, he, Jesus, is certainly inviting all, but he's inviting all to come and to die, to pick up their cross and die to their old way of life, yeah. to die to, to their to their power seeking, to 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 live a new uh, life of, of servanthood, not to just get their 
um, emotional high and make sure they're going to die and 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 go to heaven. But so there's a lot more up to Jesus than that point of view allows. And there's a lot more to Paul that's a lot more like Jesus than the misinterpretation of mm. Paul allows. Yeah. Yeah, I remember one time I took a bunch of quotes from Jesus, didn't tell people who it was saying, but, you know, the woe to you, Corazon, and not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, around my kingdom, and the some of the stuff from Matthew 23, where Jesus excoriates yeah. the religious leaders. And people, one, I asked, where is this from? Or I'll say, oh, it's got to be from the Old Testament. It's got to be. It's all judgmental. It's got to be said, well, actually, it comes from Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the non-judgmental Jesus is probably the one of the worst. I, I I'll, I'll just say I think I almost want to say heresy. Certainly, one of yeah. the most worst misinterpretations of Jesus. Uh, the great um, Marcus Bachmuller, who's professor at uh, Oxford University, has an article some years back, uh, academic journal, called um, the non-inclusive Jesus. Yeah, so, something like that, and and he's basically making the same point I've been making. Not that Jesus doesn't love everybody. Not sure. that Jesus doesn't want to invite everybody in, go into the highways and byways, compel them to come in. Yeah. The reason you need to compel them is to come in is because a lot of other people don't want anything to do with Jesus. Yeah. So. Yeah. The, the, Tom Wright, I think, somewhere says the D Jesus that doesn't judge is the Jesus that doesn't care. And I've always thought about that, that, that you know, God judges because God cares and God loves. Oh, and that's right. And, and and this matters. These kinds of things are are important um, yeah. uh, for us. Um, so uh, let me ask you uh, here just to get your take on it. And I don't know whether this is something you've delved a lot into in your studies of Paul or not. But where do you stand on some of the disputed authorships of these letters? You know, you get Colossians, Ephesians, you get, uh, of course, the pastoral epistles and and others. Where what what? What do you tend? Where do you tend to go on that, as far as yeah. Paul and his connection to some of these disputed letters? Sure. Well, just in case your audience doesn't know the the question, there's three yes. letters attributed to Paul in the New Testament. Seven of them: Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First Thessalonians, and Philemon. Ninety-nine point nine percent of scholars and interpreters say were genuinely written by Paul or authored by Paul. The other six are disputed. So they're called the disputed letters, Second Thessalonians, Colossians, Ephesians, uh, and the three pastorals. What have I left out? Colossians, Ephesians, Second Thessalonians, and the three pastorals. That's six. Okay. Um, my own view is that at least 11 of these, well, let, let me back up. I think we have to understand authorship in the ancient world is a spectrum. Everything from actually writing it yourself to having it a secretary to whom you dictate to having a secretary to whom you say, uh, Alan, I'd like you to go tell the church in such and such a place that they're doing a great job and make it a nice, you know, positive letter. That's the spectrum of authorship in the ancient world. So my view is that Paul's letters fall along a pretty wide swath of that spectrum. Okay. And that the, from my point of view, at least, the seven undisputed are, of course, authored and by Paul, but not written by Paul. He even names his secretary in Romans, Tertius, a, a, mm -hmm. a slave, or probably a freedman. 
Um, uh, Colossians and Ephesians, I think, were written by, uh, were, were physically written by Tychicus. Mm -hmm. Mentioned at the end of each, I think he is the connection between the two as Paul's technical term, amanuensis or secretary. I have no reason to dispute Second Thessalonians. Now we come to the pastoral epistle. So now we have, in my book, we have uh, 10 of the 13 that are genuinely from Paul so far. With respect to the pastoral epistles, I think Second Timothy is, if not written by Paul or authored by Paul in jail, it, it collects his actual fragments of his own writing there. First and Second Timothy are a little bit more difficult because they have things in them that are harder to reconcile with the other 11 letters, but not impossible. So uh, I, I I plead the fifth on second on First Timothy and Titus because I'm not quite sure. But for the other 11, I weigh in pretty heavily in my in my big book on uh, on Paul. Okay. Um, in favor of Pauline authorship. Uh, okay. And there I, are, yeah, yeah, there, there are people who go even further, Luke Timothy mm -hmm. Johnson. Uh, I mean, Douglas Campbell's come along in the last few years and argued uh, against uh, uh, for everything but the pastoral epistles. In my, in my book, Apostle of the Crucified Lord, the big textbook, I say that first and Timothy, second, second Timothy has the cruciform spirit, but has different letters, different mm. It's, it's the spirit of Paul, but maybe in different words. First Timothy and Titus seem to have the same words as Second Timothy, but not quite the same spirit. But, you know, I think we should all be humble and, and not be too uh, dogmatic about these things. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I have to tell you, as I've gotten older over the years and looked at certain issues, and I am no expert when it comes to authorship and even of the Gospels and everything. And I just sort of, I, I've become more... Uh, 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 reserved in yeah. some of these conclusions. Would it be fair to say, though, so first and second, first Timothy and Titus are, uh, you complete the fifth on that. It's fair to say, though, they're Pauline in character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think anybody would dispute or they shouldn't dispute the idea that they preserve, um, if, if they're not directly by Paul or his secretary, they preserve Paul's message some some would say for a new generation or a new or a new circumstance so uh, what i tell my students is these are important or interesting issues but um uh the inspiration of scripture is not dependent on our knowledge of authorship yeah and what we have is a is a canon uh that's not ours to uh, take apart um and at the end of the day we have to deal with the with the text and its claims not not necessarily uh, deciding who wrote what. If we had to decide who wrote what, we'd be in big trouble for a good portion of the Bible, wouldn't we? Yeah, yeah. It may be even some of our own writings. <laughs> you yeah, never right. know. And, and Paul can develop over time, too. So anyhow, yeah. Well, I think that's the other thing that I, I, I think sometimes gets missed, is that Paul... Paul I don't, the word progress is overused, but he he developed he developed you know from his earlier letters and as as he thought you know you get a more mature Paul. That's not saying anything about Paul that is yeah. not being said about the rest of us. He's now 
looking looking on things uh, and from experience and and reflecting on certain things. And his language may his language may sound different than it did twenty years before. Absolutely, or yeah. different language for a different context. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, Michael, I think we're going to end it there. I want to thank you for this. This has been a great uh, 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 time to talk about Paul. And y'all, you know, when you when you talk about Paul, even if it's for forty five minutes or so, you almost feel like you hardly scratch the surface. Don't yeah, you? Of course we have scratched the surface barely. Yeah. yeah, but we're good news because we're going to put links to your books in the descriptions so people can. Uh, and I'll recommend. I'll, I'll certainly highlight your book on reading Paul. Which Thank would you. probably be a really good place to start if someone really wants to get into Paul. That's yeah. probably one of the best places to start reading Paul. It's, it's been helpful for people in that in that context. It's okay, used in a lot of churches and yeah. So okay, good. Well, Mike, Thank you so much, Alan. Thank, thank yeah. you, and hopefully we'll see you in San Antonio in a couple of weeks. We'll run into That's each right. other. So good. all right, all right, all right, friends. Thank you for joining us. This is Faith Seeking Understanding. I am Alan Bevere. And a reminder that the patron saint of faith-seeking understanding is Anselm of Canterbury, who said, I do not understand in order to believe, but I believe in order to understand. So friends, keep seeking. <laughs>